welcome to the Bethel Free Baptist Church Weekly Sermons. This is the evening service of Saturday the 18th of April 2015, entitled Proclaiming Creation in a Scientific Age. From Creation Ministries International, here's Brother Philip Bell. Well, I appreciate the uh, opportunity to come to the church here, and I'm appreciative that you've come out on a lovely day uh, to... I mean, how many more days like this are we going to get? We need showers in April, don't we? But um, I suspect we may get a wet summer, but that's not a forecast. But it's really good to see people coming out to hear about these things in a day when it's quite controversial to talk about such things. And also when people more and more have less appetite for events like this, to go and hear someone speak about scripture or to speak about um, a topic. People are much more interested in going to events which involve lots of noise and music and I'm not knocking those things but you know getting people to come out and hear someone teach is um, I think the days uh, are coming where numbers are getting smaller and smaller so I'm encouraged when a good number turn up. In a moment I'm going to talk to you about this topic proclaiming creation in the scientific age. Stuart has done the job of really showing how you don't have to be afraid of uh, science as a Christian. He's a, an able engineer and he has shown us that from his perspective there's a complete marrying together of science and technology and engineering and his faith as a Christian. And I want to really give you a, a talk now that's getting into more of those issues of Bible and creation and faith as that relates to science. It's not purely a scientific talk. We will deal with some science later, but I'm going to get you thinking about the why matters type of issues. Um, that's what we do. Uh, this was, as, as a ministry, we had this conference a couple of years ago, Unmasking Fables, Promoting Truth. Actually, you can get the DVD, uh, the, two, the two DVD set, four talks of that conference upstairs. But... This slogan we had, Unmasking Fables, Promoting Truth, really represents what we do generally. It's generic for this ministry, for all biblical creationists. And you can have a look at that uh, banner and the, and the verse of scripture that's mentioned there. I have no apology for saying that I think evolution is a fable that takes people away from truth. One of the, there was a time when it was taking me away from the truth as a Christian uh, at university to study the natural sciences back in the mid-80s. I believed somehow God used evolution. I had imbibed that view through um, my studies at A-level. I started to take on board evolutionary ideas and it, it brought me to a point, to cut a long story short, where I had a crisis point in my faith. I'd realised there were problems scientifically with evolution and then I sat down and looked at the scripture in relation to what I was learning in science and I realised these two, two things didn't agree. I didn't know anything about creation ministries. I didn't know anything about the word creationism. I'd never heard creationist as a word. And so it was my doubts based on my lectures that caused me eventually to reject evolution. But I would have benefited greatly from faith-affirming facts, as you see up here on the screen. And that's what we hope uh, to provide for people and also to encourage people who are not yet believers Say not yet, because I have faith that people can come to Christ even through such messages as we're hearing about today. 
If you've got questions, then I encourage you to look for answers, uh, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're a seasoned biblical creation, believing Christian or not. And creation.com is a great place to do that. We have a new article daily on the website. We have thousands of articles, uh, all sorts of videos, all sorts of audio clips of all the, lit all the literature that you see upstairs, plus much more is available on the website to order. But there's masses of free material on this website. And as a, as a, a service to interested inquirers or uh, supporters, we send out a newsletter every couple of weeks called Info Bytes by email. It's entirely free, giving you highlights of things which we've featured on the website. And as you can see from this example, um, the topics we cover are diverse. Some of them are more scientific, some of them are philosophical, some of them are to do with social issues in society. They all have to do, though, with the subject of origins and why it matters. And uh, I would encourage you to consider getting hold of this. It connects with education, it connects with uh, different beliefs about origins, it connects with what's happening in the world, it connects with how you answer questions like why is there death and suffering, it connects with almost everything. That, to, that is to do with the big questions of life. Where do we come from? Why are we here? What happens to us after death? These issues connect all the time to creation evolution. So if you'd find it useful to have such a newsletter, just very quickly, I'm going to pass out a couple of clipboards. And if you're interested, all we need is your email address. We don't need anything else, just your email address. And then you can be receiving that newsletter. We do not spam you with other information that's not relevant to the Infobytes, and we don't give your information to third parties, that is a promise. We've signed up to Data Protection Act and all that sort of uh, malarkey. So please, it's just for that. And if you would find that useful, I encourage you to get it. Well, ours is a scientific age. There's no question about that. I would argue it's also a very religious age. We'll come on to that. And I'm going to deal with some scientific uh, things later. But we want to start by dealing with some more philosophical or theological, social things, things that connect with how we live, who we engage with, what society's like. More and more people are quite open and unabashed about their atheism today. It's more intellectually respectable than ever, people think, because we don't need God. We have outgrown the idea of God because we now know where we came from, and it doesn't need the scripture. You don't need the Bible for that. Thomas Nagel is such a man, uh, New York uh, philosophy professor, New York University, and he says, I want atheism to be true, and I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief, it's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. Well, let's applaud him for his honesty. Do you know, it may not be that people you know would say that in so many words, but that is actually where a lot of people are at in private, in their thinking. They don't want God. They don't want this king to reign over us, to quote uh, a certain person from the New Testament. They do not want any kind of accountability. And therefore, evolution, for some people, seems to be a way of explaining how you don't need to have a God. You don't need the, need the hegemony of a supernatural being who, as they see it, would have a big stick and be always pointing error in their life. That's how people see God. I'm not saying that's how I see God. So I believe, actually, this quotation represents how a lot of people increasingly think. This day and age we live in, 
undoubtedly is, is characterized by impressive scientific advances, you know, amazing, remarkable technological achievements, some of which are being produced by creation-believing Christians like Stuart Burgess, and a day of engineering feats that are monumental in scale. They've just completed the tunnel that was in the news, 57 kilometers long, is it, um, in going under one of the big uh, parts of the Swiss Alps, longer even than the Channel Tunnel. Most of that tunnel cut through solid rock. Incredibly uh, difficult to do, but people achieving things like that. And friends, we are a society that seems to have great faith that we can solve social problems, eradicate all kinds of diseases, get rid of poverty, because we are achieving all sorts. The sky's the limit. What might we not achieve in the future if we put our minds to it? with advancing technology. And I've highlighted several words in this slide because really the key to all of this is this confidence in man. We're doing this, we're doing that. Human beings are able to do amazing things. And there's a humanism that goes with that, a man-centered philosophy that says we don't need God, we throw off the supernatural, the idea that there's any kind of being uh, beyond us, that's, uh, we don't need that, we've come of age, we're enlightened, we're bright. We've left that sort of stuff behind. Superstition, medieval stuff. You know, we, we, we've come of age. And people increasingly are glorifying man. They're glorying in man and man's achievements. Isn't that really true today? Not always up front, but increasingly there's a transfer going on from the glory that once was given to God by many ordinary people in society, God-fearing, we sometimes say, even if they weren't actually Christians, and increasingly now they're giving that glory instead to man. Just go to any football match to see the glorying of man. Just go to any pop concert or rock concert or any of these times where people are being held up as some kind of uh, person of the moment. Nothing's really changed from these days of Psalm 10.4. King David said, The wicked, through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. Or you could write, write, uh, phrase that, God isn't in none of his thoughts. That's true of so many people today. Don't give a thought for God. You might have God for state occasions and funerals and weddings, but you don't have God for anything else because you don't need God. We've thrown off the shackles of religion, or have we? Because hand in hand with all the undoubted progress we've just mentioned, all those achievements, we see a growing intolerance of moral absolutes. People don't want there to be absolute standards of right and wrong. We decide what's right and wrong for ourselves without God. We don't need God for that. We can make up our own rules. We know how to do that. We're sensible. The majority can decide what's right. And then the minority can be penalized, even if what they believe might be in line with what God says in the Bible. That's what's happening today. There's an inability, I would say, and Christians would say this certainly, of ordinary people to decide what's right and wrong. You scratch your head, you think, how could someone honestly think that that's okay? Or that, nor, that behavior is, is acceptable? Or that way of believing or, or, or speaking is okay? But nothing's much, nothing much again has changed since the Bible times. You go back to the Old uh, Testament prophet Jonah, God speaking through uh, to Jonah here. In Jonah 4 verse 11, Jonah was upset that God had had such mercy on the Ninevites because they had repented. They had believed that God was serious about sin and they had put on sackcloth and ashes. They had decided they wanted to get right with God and so God has mercy on them. 
And God says to Noah, uh, to Noah, Jonah, should I not spare Nineveh, that great city wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between the right hand and their left hand? 120,000 people, Noah, who I want to show mercy to, they, get, they don't know the left from the right. In other words, they don't know what's right and wrong. They, they don't have the word of God. There's been a famine in their land of the word of God. They, I want to have mercy on them. Is it really any different for the man or woman on the street today, as it were? People have, are living in a post-Christian or post-modern society where they really don't know that certain things might be offensive to a Christian, for example. People seem unable to make wise decisions. We're going through the general election run-up, aren't we, with all these bods standing up and giving you their opinions and their philosophy and what they would do if they got into power. And I don't know about you, but some people seem pretty clueless. But then it's all the way through society at every level, from ordinary folks all the way up to the highest level of the politicians and the leaders. If people have no reference to God and his word, then... They're really just making it up as they go along. And folks, we see an increasing antagonism, don't we, towards biblical Christianity? Religion doesn't really offend as long as you don't harm anybody. But biblical Christianity and the faith claims of Christ, who came into the world the same sinners, that's offensive, isn't it, to people? The idea that he is the way, the truth and the life, and that no one can come to the Father but through him, that's offensive to people. The idea that you would even have the word sin is offensive to people. We get rid of hell. The Church of England has removed the word hell from its baptismal service recently, according to one article I read. And we see a rejection of the sanctity of human life. We've got used to the fact that for decades now we've had abortion. They're discussing euthanasia. We've had a recent debate on three-parent babies that's still being discussed now. We'd probably be the first country in the world to fully embrace three-parent babies. If you want to find out about that, we've got a long very well thought out article on the CMI website. Uh, there's a rejection of the sanctity of life, that man was made in the image of God. We're we also used to be living in a permissive society. Isn't that true? We've gotten used to the fact that, you know, adultery is portrayed on the, in the media as, as, as kind of a fun thing. Or we've got used to the fact that sexual promiscuity is just the norm. And we could go on. We've had the legalization of gay marriage. We, our society is so, so different. The average person in the 1950s, even as a ranked non-believer, would be astonished, perhaps shocked even, by what is now happening right now in the 21st century in society. Society has changed a great deal. But we're far from achieving some kind of secular utopia. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men, but without God. Yeah, some people dream of that. For all our undoubted prowess in technology and medicine and telecommunications, people, I would argue, are still very religious. Witness the widespread idolatry you see all around you, and you see it in your own heart, let's be honest. False religions, cults proliferating. We've got idolizing of film stars. We even talk about pop idols. Yes, it's not really hard to discern that something's going on. And then we, we, we have the sports personalities. I mean, I'm not saying you shouldn't admire or honour people who achieve great things, but there's a difference between that and idolising something and it becoming more important to you than anything else, the people around you and the, and the God who made you. It might be your car, it could be anything, couldn't it? Anything that becomes too important 
and it becomes the object of worship for you. While Paul waited for other Christians at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill, and go there today in Athens, the Areopagus, and he said, ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too, stupor- too superstitious. Uh, we're not talking, su- superstition doesn't just mean black cats and, you know, breaking glass and making mirrors and running, running, running under ladders and stuff. Superstition in the context here is about this religious idolatry that is different from and, and instead of the worship of the one true God. Anything like anything that is not the worship of the one true God who made the heavens and the earth, as Paul would go on to teach these people later in this chapter of Acts 17, anything that is not the worship of the one true God is superstition, it's religion, it's false religion, it's idolatry. And folks, part of the picture is evolution. You wondered when I was going to mention that, didn't you? You came to hear a talk and, and Philip Bell's been talking about all these other things. He's never mentioned about evolution except right at the beginning. Well, evolution, this prevailing widespread belief in evolution has a massive part to play, I believe, in this whole picture. If you go on to to read Acts 17, you'll see that Paul effectively gives a creation seminar on Mars Hill. He says, the Lord who made the heavens and the earth, he's your creator. He was coming against the Greek idea, the pagan idea, the evolutionary idea of the Stoic and uh, and Epicurean philosophers that man was part of this organic great chain of being. And he countered that. Folks, today, people are very religious. Because you're an evolutionist, as I once was, it doesn't necessarily mean you're an arch-secularist and someone who is a complete materialist. Some people are, but some people are still very religious. But they've got maybe a new age kind of religion, like this very famous biologist, Lynn Margulis, who came up with the theory of endosymbiosis to explain the origin of the Uh, mitochondria, the powerhouses of all cells, and the chloroplasts, the green parts of cells which make in plants uh, sugar by photosynthesis. She was the one who came up with a a theory of how that happened. And here she says, every few years my students and I make a pilgrimage to San Quentin Bay, Mexico. Here we find laminated, that means kind of layered, brightly striped sediments underlain by gelatinous mud. These microbial mats enchant me. This is an evolutionary Eden. Standing at the microbial mat, I feel privileged. I delight. She says, I'm thrilled. I'm exhilarated with the freedom. What's she talking about? Freedom from the hegemony of a supernatural God. That's what she's talking about. The freedom to contemplate life's remotest origins without what? Without that, free from that, that's what she's talking about. Now, let me ask you a question. Had this lady, she's dead now, but had this lady outgrown religion? Clearly not. She was very religious. She was very superstitious. Nothing had changed since Paul encountered those philosophers. And this is the problem. I used to talk about these castle diagrams way back when I first started talking about this in the early, well, about 2001, when I first was speaking on this issue. And uh, other creation speakers used to use them. I've begun using them this year just to, just to uh, get back to uh, uh, an interesting way of trying to see the problem. The problem is, 
not the, what you see in the balloons, the, the issues that we face in society. They're really symptoms of under, an underlying problem that's, that's really... Man has become humanistic at heart. He has decided that truth is something he determines without God. And evolution's part of that, because if you don't have a supernatural God, you need another theory for how everything got here. So evolution's the only game in town. What's the Christian church doing in response to seeing the issues in society and seeing what's going on? Well, Christians often are just asleep, like the guy at the top of the castle of Christianity. What's the problem? Did they not look at the news? Do they not look around them at what's happening in society? Others are just shooting into nowhere, like the man at the far right of the picture, engaging with some issue that's not really where it's at, not really something the law would have them do. And then you've got people who are looking at the issues in society, like the man at the left-hand side of the castle of Christianity, and taking shots at the issues. And we wouldn't criticise that, but perhaps he's fighting a losing battle because he's not really understood the nature of the problem, as I'll come on to. And then you've got people who are, like the man at the bottom right, shooting at their own foundations. Well, it doesn't really matter what you believe about Genesis, as long as you believe God is the creator. The Bible tells you why God created. It doesn't tell you how he did it. You look to science for that. Evolution millions of years. You know, when you read Genesis, I challenge you to find one verse that says why God created. But you've got a great deal of information that says when, what God was doing and when he did it in a sequence of events. It couldn't be further from the truth. But friends, what we have here is a problem. The problem is, if the foundations be destroyed, what shall the righteous do? Psalm 11.3. Now, I'm taking that slightly out of context, but I'm applying it in this way. Christians, you have a found, if you're here as a Christian this afternoon, you have a foundation for your faith, which is that the word of God is true from the very beginning, from cover to cover, from the first verse to the last verse, it's all the word of God. All scripture is God-breathed. It's all inspired by God, not it contains the word of God, but it is the word of God. And when you have that view, you can understand why the world doesn't. Because the world doesn't have that foundation. The world is standing on a different foundation. You don't necessarily have to be a paid-up member of a humanist organization or society to, be, to effectively be humanist at heart. You've just basically got a philosophy that you decide what's right and wrong. You don't need God for that. Basically, we're all born as humanists at heart, unless we come and embrace Christ by faith and we repent of our sin. Righteousness exalts a nation, says the Bible, but sin is the reproach to any people. So uh, that's Proverbs 14. And what we see in our society is exactly the truth and the outworking of that verse. We see these issues, which... You see in the balloons there, racism, homosexual behavior, we've got gay marriage, you've got abortion, you've got family breakup, you've got pornography, you've got increasing lawlessness and licentiousness of all kinds. Folks, I know these things aren't politically correct, and maybe one day people like me will be put in jail for standing up and daring to speak on these issues. But at the moment, as far as I'm aware, it's still free, a free society to talk on these things. So some people are noticing this issue, others are not really realizing the problem and they're knocking out their own foundation. The church is largely unaware of the importance of biblical creation. Let me give you an example of where this is leading. Now this quotation I'm going to show you and the one following are from a confirmation notebook used in the Anglican church. 
not all Anglican churches use it, but Hugh Montefiore, former Bishop of Birmingham, actually had this through many editions. You can still find it on the internet, on Amazon. It's gone through to its about sixth edition. He's dead now. He died in 2005. But although he wrote this decades ago, 1968, it's still the way lots of people think. How did sin arise? The Garden of Eden is a myth. So you know that he doesn't accept Genesis. Then he says, human beings are the result of evolution and shaped by natural selection. Self-centeredness and aggression were essential at every stage of evolution. Human beings naturally inherit this self-centeredness, original sin, and without it, babies could not survive. Oh, so sin, self-centeredness, aggression, these kind of things are actually useful, important, you need them to survive. That's a new take on sin, isn't it? Uh, now, if a person believes that, don't you think logically they're not going to really understand or accept that Jesus came to save us from our sins? Well, that's quite, quite right. What the cross is not, the cross of Christ is not the son of man standing in my place to take the punishment that I ought to have. Such a view is immoral. In any case, no one person could suffer the whole world's punishments, says Hugh Montefiore. The Apostle Paul said one person did suffer the world's punishments and his name is Jesus. And you need to put your faith in him to escape the wrath to come and to be saved and to have forgiveness from God. But Hugh Montefiore says, no, I don't agree with that. In other words, he doesn't believe the gospel. He totally contradicts the gospel. One wonders what made him interested in being a bishop. But anyway, even if he could, he says, this would mean that everyone would go on sinning without any fear of punishment, which is total bunkum, but we won't go there. I haven't got time to explore this quotation. I just want you to see what some people who are religious teach. And I would say to you, and you may or may not be aware of this, that that opinion that I've just shared on two slides is not some liberal position any longer. It's also the view of many, and I mean many, mainstream people who wear the label evangelical. I know of people who have exactly those views I've just read out to you. And they wear the label evangelical. They get invited to conferences to address evangelical Christians. You, some of you will know names. I'm not going to mention names now. But what I'm saying to you is evolution creation is a foundationally important issue. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1 verse 1. If you start with belief in a truly omnipotent, omniscient, that is all-powerful, all-knowing God, you have a high view of Scripture. Anything else, any questioning of that, you're on the slippery slope to unbelief. Did God really say? You hear that a lot, don't you, in so many words. It's as old as the Garden of Eden, when the serpent said to Eve, did God really say, relating to the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Friends, Paul the Apostle, when he wrote Romans 1, might, have well, might as well have been writing about British society in the 21st century. It's so contemporary. When they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corrupt to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. People started to worship the creature rather than the creator, as he goes on to say. People in our enlightened age, so-called, have transferred the glory that's rightfully due to God the creator who made all things, and they've given that glory to created objects instead. As I was saying earlier, this is what Paul says happens when a society starts to reject the creator. 
reject the creation. And as a result, this worship transfer from creator to created object leads to the moral slide. It leads to depravity generally. That's not what I'm saying. That's what Apostle Paul is teaching. Wherefore, in other words, therefore, as a result of what we've just read, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts, to dishonour their own bodies between themselves, who exchanged the truth of God into a lie, and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. In view of this, the importance of proclaiming biblical creation could not be more clear. Romans 1 is teaching us, listen to this, Creation denial is tantamount to creator denial. Romans 1 is emphatically teaching us that when you deny the creation of God, you are effectively denying the creator. That's something that many Christians need to take on board. It's not Philip Bell's opinion. This is what the Apostle Paul is saying. So why we proclaim creation, summing this up. We believe in proclaiming creation because Genesis is true history and it's foundational to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We believe in proclaiming creation because the hope of the gospel, friends, is the only answer, the only one who can meet the needs of men and women, young people, boys and girls, is Christ, who came into this world to save sinners, says the Apostle Paul, 1 Timothy 1.15. Ah, but that comes from a book Riddled with historical and scientific inaccuracies, says the person you're speaking to. What do you do then? You don't go to Genesis because it's not something that everybody believes. You go to Genesis still, if that's their issue, because it's the thing they don't believe and because they need to believe it, because it's foundational to the gospel. Genesis is still relevant today. The good news is still good news. Jesus still can be preached as the one who came into the world to save sinners, even though not a lot of people want to hear it or initially think it's irrelevant. Genesis is reliable. It's as relevant today as when it was first penned. And people everywhere are languishing in spiritual ignorance and spiritual darkness. And this is the only message that will help them to understand the gospel of Christ. The light of the glorious gospel in the face of Jesus Christ needs to shine on them. And that can only happen if we, if we're Christians here this afternoon, are confident enough to go out and share it in all of its glorious truth. Not watered down, not removing the bits that we think are politically incorrect or removing the bits or playing down the bits that we think are unpalatable today because they're intellectually sophisticated or modern. Whatever a person's intellectual issues, they still have the moral issue, which is they need to line up with what God says, which is often against their own opinion. We must shine a light into dark places. And one way to do that is to answer people's questions about origins. Now, I know that's been focusing on the state of things, the, the, the difficulties and the, the state of people's hearts. They're sinners. They're languishing in darkness and so on. But the good news is Christians have truth. This is Paul writing to the Ephesian Christians, and I've picked up verses from Ephesians 2, verse 1, verse 3, and verse 12. Put them together. You Christians hath he, that is God, quickened, made alive, who were, past tense, dead in trespasses and sins. You were, by nature, children of wrath. You were under the judgment of God, as everybody else. 
You were without Christ, past tense. That was your problem. You had no hope. You were without God in this world. But the good news is now, because you've put your faith and trust in Christ, you have Christ, therefore you have hope, and therefore you have God in this world. And you have God for the future as well. That's good news. There is hope, but it's in Christ alone. That hasn't changed. And so by proclaiming creation in a scientific age, we expose the folly of the foolishness of worldly thinking. We show that the creation is real. That's where the science comes in. We, we give information that backs that up. At the same time, we point people to the creator and saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, any Christian, any true believer will say amen to what I've been saying, but there's always that but. What about the claims that science has proven the Bible's unreliable in this modern scientific age? Well, I want to say to you, not only is it true, as one person said, I don't know who it was, all truth is God's truth, but I've adapted that here. All true science is God's science. I was reading Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, back in 2006. I don't recommend you read it, but it was necessary, I think, for me to read it because of the work I'm in. It was an irritating book. Has anybody else read it? <laughs> an irritating book. But he said at one point about Christians who believe in creation, get your dirty hobnails off our science. Well, I'm sorry, Richard, it's not your science. It's God's science. God's the first biologist. He's the first physicist. He's the first geographer. He's the first geologist. He's the first anthropologist. He's the first medic. He's the first everything because he made it all. It's not his science. God's science. Contrary to the idea that some people seem to have, Christians are not finding some last desperate stand for the truth in the teeth of all the evidence that's overwhelming them from scientific evolution. Have you heard of the Battle of Little Bighorn, anybody? I don't know a lot about Gen uh, uh, General Custer or whatever he was, you know, even the cavalry. It was in the Great Sioux Wars, the Battle of Little Bighorn. And there was this last stand by a man called Custer, and it was a hopeless cause. He was going to be slaughtered, but he did it anyway. There's a picture of it. You know, they were wiped out. And I think a lot of people think these little creationists, oh, they're faithful people. They believe, but they're so misguided. And there they are standing, trying to hold on to a little bit of science here and there, but really they've got nothing. In the, in the face of the onslaught of the evolutionary secular machine that's coming to swamp them out. Nothing could be further from the truth. We're not fighting some desperate last stand. I'm convinced that there is tremendous evidence. There's a weight of evidence. Go and look at the book, Evolution's Achilles Heels. Go and look at the DVD, Evolution's Achilles Heels, and all of the other literature up there. It's not a lost cause. We need to clarify that when we're talking Today, Stuart and myself, we're talking about, when we're dealing with origins, origin science, not the operational or experimental science that Stuart's involved in, which is applied in his case to engineering technology. Experimental science is different from origin science. All people benefit from computers and motor cars and iPods and all of these electronic gadgets and many other things, sat-nav, and you, you can go to hospital and benefit from medical advances and you can benefit from uh, transport and telecommunications and so on. That's based on real, observable, testable, repeatable science we do every day. It's really, it's practical, it's based on what we observe, test and repeat. 
but there is not the same testing possible for something that happened in the past. We don't know what happened in the past. We've got to reconstruct the vanished past. We've got to speculate. We've got to tell stories based on what we think happened in the past. And so whether you're dealing with flight down the bottom right, theories of the origins of flight, or David Attenborough, or you're dealing with the origins of the universe, that picture of the man with the, with the, uh, the, the middle right. We're dealing with chemistry, the origin of the first cell from simple chemicals, so-called, or you're speculating about fossils, and certainly if you're talking about any kind of ape man, then you are speculating, you're telling stories about the past based on your beliefs about origins which are different from the Bible. You have a worldview that rules out God. You have a worldview that says that God, no God is needed. Or if you're a Christian or a professing Christian, you have a worldview that says, yes, there's a God, I worship him, but the Bible has nothing to say about how this universe was made. All of that means that if you're looking at this issue from a perspective of evolution millions of years, you're going to see the facts in a certain way. And if you're looking at the evolution, uh, sorry, the, the facts, the same scientific facts from the perspective that God created all things perfectly, fallen world, global flood, and so on, then you're going to see those same facts a different way. There are plenty of scientific facts which, while challenging evolution, are wonderfully consistent with the biblical record. And that's what often surprises people. By the way, we should never be ashamed to say who is the creator. He is Christ. He is the eternal word made flesh. In the beginning was the word. We're not just going to talk about intelligent design in Creation Ministries International, and I hope you don't either, because although intelligent design is good, the scientific arguments are sound, we need to go beyond that and say who is the intelligent designer. It is the creator God. It's Jesus Christ. That is emphatically taught in John 1, in Colossians 1, who is, that is, Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, for by him were all things created. Who is the intelligent designer? Jesus Christ, the creator. And not to give credit to him is to rob him of his glory, his rightful, deserved glory. We have to go beyond, if we're true Christians, from just saying the world was intelligently designed. We have to say Christ is the creator. There are numerous evidences from all kinds of science, whether you're dealing with cell biology, biochemistry, anatomy, physiology, anthropology, paleontology, the study of fossils, geology, geomorphology, the shape of the land, cosmology, history, archaeology, Egyptology, whatever it is, there are numerous evidences from all those scientific and, and uh, uh, historical disciplines that are wonderfully consistent with what the Bible teaches. And it's a surprise to many people to discover just how wonderfully consistent they are. All true, all true science is God's science. And when we're dealing with those questions, commonly asked questions about the dinosaurs and the dating methods and the fossils and the millions of years so-called and the flood and continental drift and plate tectonics and the Nephilim and extraterrestrials and a host of other questions that people ask, then Christians particularly, you need to have some answers or need to know where to point people to the answers because that's part of what we're called to do. Be ready to give a reason for the hope that's within you. Now, that's not, that hope, 1 Peter 3.15, is not about knowing about creation science. It's about your hope in Jesus Christ and the truth of the scripture. But if someone challenges you and says, well, that's all very well, but that comes from a book riddled with scientific and historical inaccuracies, then you've got to be prepared to 
deal with some of those challenges. Pull down those barriers to faith. Destroy those proud obstacles to the knowledge of God, 2 Corinthians 10 verse 4, so that you get a hearing, so that you get people to that point where they can encounter Christ. God willing. And that's what we seek to do with our magazines, our books and our DVDs, our website and so on. Do have a look at those things afterwards. I'll leave some time for questions and then you can ask me about some of these questions that you may have remaining. And uh, also I'll give you some pointers to the literature. I'm going to give you just a few areas of science, probably just four for this afternoon, early evening. Um, First of all, the Big Bang. I'm not going to give you a little lecture on astrophysics and cosmology just now. I'm going to give you something that illustrates the speculative nature of this so-called science of cosmology. It's not wrong to speculate. We have cosmologists who are creationists. But even our own John Hartnett, who writes a lot on cosmology, would never say that cosmology is science. In fact, he emphatically says it's not proper science. It's not something you can test in a, in a lab. It's unwise, we believe, for Christians to pin their theology to the Big Bang, for example. This explanation of the universe coming, coming into existence about 14 billion years ago out of an explosion of nothing. The universe, says Discover Magazine 2002, burst into something from absolutely nothing. Zero, nada. And as it got bigger, it became filled with even more stuff that came from absolutely nowhere. How's that possible? Well, ask Alan Guth. His theory of inflation helps explain everything. His theory of inflation had nothing to do with the devaluing of currency, everything to do with how the universe supposedly expanded after the Big Bang from an infinitesimally small particle, much tinier than the smallest subatomic particle, and became the size of a grapefruit. It happened many, many, many times faster than the speed of light, and that's called inflation. And it was a way of patching up serious problems with the Big Bang back 13 years ago. Alan Guth was an MIT, Massachusetts, of Institute, Massachusetts, Massachusetts Institute of Technology professor. Tongue twister. It is for me. Um, so this was his patch-up job. And it's become quite popular. Now, I'm going to lighten this up a minute with a, 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 a cartoon, which I like. And if you like it, great. And if you don't, well, just forgive me. Let me get this straight. First, there was nothing. Then it exploded. Seriously, do you realize that that's exactly what is believed? And if you question it, they think you're daft. No, come, come on. Seriously. Christians believe many things by faith. You have to hold your hand up and say, by faith I believe that. Hebrews 11 verse 3, by faith we believe the world was, worlds were framed by the word of God. So that what we see was not made of things which are visible. It's faith. Can't prove it. But to believe the universe exploded out of nothing, nothing is nothing. This is before you have a seething mass of particles and antiparticles or any subatomic particles. This is nothing. To believe that nothing exploded to become this universe, including you, as one evolutionist put it, evolution is a theory that given enough time, hydrogen gas turns into people, quote, unquote. Believe that is a step of massive faith, a monumental faith way beyond the faith that I have, I believe, as a Christian. But even going back to Alan Guth and his theory, you see, people decided we think he's right. Just one year ago, they said, we think we've found evidence that Guth is right. In fact, this 25-page paper was appeared in a top physics journal. Top experts produced it, and they said, we've been measuring um, 
certain things that we've got strong evidence, strong confirmation of inflation. The Nobel Prize, people said, was on its way. Guth was going to get the Nobel Prize. Not so fast. In just a few months, the very same physicists plus others said, mm, yeah, we think we may have a few problems, lads. Problems, lads. We might have been measuring the wrong thing. We might not have accounted for something here and there. And so they were not quite so sure that they'd found what they thought they'd found, which is this evidence for super rapid expansion of space just fractions of a second after the Big Bang. Publicly, they were admitting they weren't so confident of their result. And in January the 30th this year, Jonathan Amos, who's a commonly, uh, he often writes for the BBC as a, as a science correspondent, he said the original observations of these men are equally compatible with there being no primordial gravitational waves. What that means is, if they had found evidence for these early, these primordial gravitational waves, it would be evidence that Guth was right, Nobel Prize. But they realized, because they weren't measuring things properly, as I should come on to explain, they realized that the observations were equally compatible with the opposite conclusion. Okay? If your observations can mean that, or something that's 180 degrees from that, your observations aren't very useful. Notice the title of the article. New study says bicep detection was wrong. They got it wrong. Now, I'm applauding the scientists for their honesty, for speedily showing they got it wrong. But doesn't that just show you how speculation is involved and that in the case of this piece of science, one bit of speculation, one observation misinterpreted was the difference between a man getting a Nobel Prize or not. What happened was they hadn't been taking proper account of galactic dust in the signal that they were measuring. Okay? So what they had been measuring wasn't actually a signal, it was noise in the data. Here's an interesting quotation from just two years ago. In New Scientist, a magazine that I can assure you is very strongly anti-creationist. Our established picture of the universe is supremely successful. He's talking about the Big Bang picture. Maybe because most of it's made up. The creationist had written that would be calls for him to be hung, drawn, and quartered, probably. Far outweighing ordinary stars and gas are two elusive entities, dark matter and dark energy. We don't know what they are, except that they appear to be almost everything. Now, you, again, you've got to hand, hand it to them, the honesty that appears in this article. Well, cosmology isn't science at all says John Hartnett in the documentary Evolution's Achilles' Heels, as I mentioned later. We reject the Big Bang in Creation Ministries International, not only because we believe it's unbiblical, but because we think there are numerous scientific problems with it. Well, I want to leave you with a recent scientific announcement. Along with antimatter and dark matter, you've re we've recently discovered the existence of doesn't matter, which appears to have no effect on the universe whatsoever. <laughs> What about the dinosaurs? People ask a lot about the dinosaurs. Um, what happened to them? Well, I believe most of them perished during the flood, which, yes, means I believe God created them, including T-Rex. Someone once said to me, T-Rex is so ugly, I don't think God could have created T-Rex. And I said, well, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. I think he looks really great myself. But anyway, representatives of each major kind of dinosaur, because they were land-dwelling air-breathing creatures, would have been on the ark. Not big, gigantic ones, just young ones. Have you heard in the last week, by the way, that Brontosaurus has been reinstated? Brontosaurus is a, is a, a, a kosher name again. 
You know, they used to say, well, Brontosaurus was a name you can't have, but now some scientists have shown that the original creatures had a slightly thicker neck, and so it's a true creature in its own right. So a Patasaurus had been confused with a Camarasaurus, head, wrong head, on the, the head on the wrong dinosaur, so they, they, they disallowed Brontosaurus, but Brontosaurus is back, okay? okay? After many decades of languishing in the mistakes, uh, he's now back. But all of these dinosaurs, our long-tailed long dinosaurs type, would have been represented probably by a couple of different kinds at most. They're all sauropod long-tailed long dinosaurs. And the same with the theropods, from which you get T-Rex and Allosaurus. The same, same with the, the spiky dinosaurs, like um, uh, the spiky dinosaurs, not very scientific, but things like uh, Stegosaurus or Ankylosaurus, they would have been one kind. The armor-plated dinosaurs like Europlocephalus, they would have been another kind. I'm mentioning names because most people know a few names of dinosaurs. About 50, perhaps, kinds of dinosaurs would have boarded the ark, but where are they today? Well, they've become extinct, and often we give talks on these things. But, you know, if this is all true, if these creationists are not making this up, then surely there should be some evidence of dinosaurs having been seen in historic times or of fossils that prove the creationist view. I'm going to give you a couple of evidences. One of them I'm not going to talk about, but I'm going to mention all of the numerous, and I mean running into hundreds, of engravings and pictures and pictograms and other things, petroglyphs on, on all sorts of tombs and rocks and carvings and caves all around, all around the world in many different cultures. And you can find books on this. We, we sometimes have books on our bookstore. There's one called Dinosaurs and Dragons I've not brought with me. Big coffee table book. There's a, there, there is a book and a DVD documentary up there called Dinosaurs and Dragons, which is not so colourful, but also a fascinating book. But I'm not going to go into the archaeological evidence that dinosaurs and man coexisted. I want to look at dinosaur paleontology, the study of fossils. Now, again, I'm going over ground that is fairly familiar to some creationists, because in the last 10 years, people have become aware, by going to creation talks at least, that they've been discovering soft, unfossilized, squidgy tissues, in this case, in a T-Rex dinosaur thigh bone, and um, blood vessels and blood cells and proteins even. And they found them in various duck-billed dinosaurs. They found them in triceratops recently. They've even carbon dated some triceratops remains, and this gave an age far too young and too embarrassing for the evolutionists of only thousands of years. And in the decades since 2005, when this lady Mary Schweitz had talked about these things, there have been many, many publications on soft, unfossilized tissues. And this is a problem. What about DNA? Well, DNA is a very unstable biomolecule. They didn't expect to find that for sure until, in fact, they found exactly that, T-Rex, bone cells, and DNA. DNA, bona fide DNA, undoubtedly. So we've got a problem here, because this kind of stuff cannot last millions of years. It can't last more than thousands of years at the most, at the very best kind of preservation uh, at sensible temperatures. Deep frozen, you could maybe survive it for many hundreds of thousands of years, arguably, but not at the normal temperatures that you find fossils. <coughs> DNA should not exist, because those single letters, the nucleotides of which DNA is composed, would fall apart in much, much less than the believed millions of years age for this T-Rex dinosaur. Mary Schweitzer is a Christian, I believe. I've I believe that her testimony tells me she's a true believer. But uh, she's a convinced evolutionist. 
And she admitted in this interview last year that the dinosaurs might not be as old as we think they are. The creationists might be right, she's what, she, is what she's saying. They might only be thousands, thousands of years old. Now, she doesn't believe that because she wants to try and show by some discovery that she hopes to make of a, um, a chemical preservation method, she wants to show that the bones are indeed millions of years old, tens of millions of years old. Well, I've got one response to that. Good luck. Good luck, because frankly, you will not get anywhere when it, com it contradicts the laws of chemistry, it contradicts common sense. You see, if you go where the evidence leads, it will take you to the position that these dinosaur bones cannot be more than a few thousand years old. And therefore, the evidence as we have it, divorced of any speculation or storytelling, is completely consistent with the biblical record and the biblical time frame. It's completely inconsistent, and it flies in the face of belief in millions of years of evolution, and dinosaurs having died out 65 million years before man came on the scene. Are people really prepared to go where the evidence leads? What about human evolution? Well, I've shown you a few fossils in relation to dinosaurs. What about those fossils that allegedly show primitive humans or ape men or You've maybe heard them called hominids. Well, it's an example of how far the scientific facts can force evolutionists away from their once strongly held positions and their propaganda teaching. I present to you Neanderthal man in the 21st century. Neanderthal man or Neanderthal man. It's been progressively rehabilitated as a true human over the 160 years since it was first discovered in a valley in Dusseldorf in 1856. He was reconstructed as a brutish, ape-like creature, muscular body, stooping gait, head thrust forward, dim-witted, treats his women folk badly, and all of, all of that sort of thing. Okay, couldn't speak. And this, this kind of view lasted at least 100 years, and then in the 1950s they found lots more fossils. A French Expert Marcelin Bull started to paint a different picture of Neanderthals, and more and more people were forced by what they were seeing to a reinterpretation. They realized that these were people that suffered from rickets and from syphilis and other kinds of disease associated with harsh climate, poor diet, iodine deficiency perhaps, calcium not being absorbed, and they had bone fractures. There was lots of infant mortality in, in these uh, people. And one person said, well, actually, if you bathed and shaved and dressed a Neanderthal, he would pass unnoticed in a New York subway. Hence this picture in 1983. Already there was a rehabilitation of Neanderthals taking place. And just 10 years ago, out of, the, of about, and I'm not exaggerating here, out of about 500 skeletal remains of Neanderthals that are known, did you know 500 individuals of Neanderthals are known, not full skeletons, but they produce this composite skeleton, which as you see is very human-like, albeit that it's actually bigger and more robust in its skeletal anatomy than a modern human on average today. These, were the, these are people who look like people who've been working out. If you work out a lot, even your bone structure can become stronger because of the muscle attachment points becoming stronger. And so here you've got a man who is bigger on the average than the average human today in a bigger brain case, and only an evolutionary glasses, in other words, only an evolutionary worldview would force you into thinking that this was somehow more primitive. 
I think these are post-flood humans consistent with an ice age climate that followed the Noah's flood. Here's an interesting statement from an Australian paleoanthropologist, a believer in evolution to the hilt. Darren Curnow said last year, nobody looks at a fossil with a completely open mind. I suppose to some extent also we see what we think. So you come to a fossil and you have an idea about the way you think human evolution works. And the first thing you do is try and fit that fossil into your worldview. The first thing you do. Again, I absolutely applaud him for his honesty. But I'm sure that some of his fellow evolutionists were a bit alarmed at this, his honesty. They'd be thinking, oh, those pesky creations are going to see what Darren's written. They're going to start quoting him. I'm sure they would have thought that. Well, you see, that's exactly right. Your views do influence what you do with the data you find. Neanderthals have been rehabilitated. Because of time, I'm not going to read all of this out. But a hyoid is a horseshoe-shaped bone in your throat. And associated, it's associated with movements of your larynx and your pharynx and your tongue. In other words, it's involved in speech. It's involved in the vocal tract. If you've got one of these that looks just like a human one, it means you speak. You spoke, sorry. <laughs> you speak. Better than me. So... Here's this man, Stephen Rowe, publishing last year work which absolutely nailed it that they were, look at the last part of the quotation, basically indistinguishable from our own, their bones in their throat. So they were used in the same way. In other words, they spoke. Neanderthals spoke like us. There is no evidence that they didn't have sophisticated, developed language. Not the, br the grunting uh, Neanderthal anymore. They weren't inferior. In an extensive re review of recent Neanderthal research, these two authors make the case that the available evidence does not support the notion, and they were looking at numerous evolutionary papers on Neanderthals, and they said that the evidence does not support the notion, well, sorry, the opinion, that Neanderthals were less advanced than anatomically modern humans. The evidence for cognitive inferiority is simply not there. Let me translate that for you. There's no evidence they were stupid, thick, dim-witted people, okay? What we're saying is that the conventional view of Neanderthals is not true. In other words, if people take this latest research, and it's based on a whole huge number of papers, then what they're saying is Neanderthals were fully human, which is what creationist anthropologists have been saying for decades. The evidence is not something that a Bible-believing Christian has to ignore because somehow it's overwhelmingly against their position. The evidence is absolutely overwhelming, overwhelmingly against the evolutionary position. The evolutionary position is not true. The creation view is proved to be true. But what I'm doing with these examples, if you think about it, is, not, is, is showing you that Big Bang, speculation, don't build your theology on that speculation. It can be wrong. The last example was the same. This example's the same. Things can be wrong. And I'm not, I'm not cherry-picking this as if there are no other evidences we could look at. Let me show you one more. Here's a fly. Very small. Sand grains for scale. Shows you how small it is. It's actually a little fruit fly. Look at its wings. These are the wings spread out. There are 27 species of these picture-wing flies, so-called, in the United Arab Emirates. And this was pictured by a man called Peter Rusenskun of the Dubai Desert Conservation Reserve. And his work was picked up by The National, which is a Dubai newspaper. And the writer said, a closer examination of the transparent wings of this gonyurielia tridens, this little fly, 
reveals a piece of evolutionary art. Each wing carries a precisely detailed image of an ant-like insect complete with six legs, two antennae, a head, thorax, and tapered abdomen. There you are. Brilliant little picture of an ant-like insect. And he says, or she says, Anna, Anna Zacharias says, it's absolutely perfect. Well, I'd agree. I'm sorry, she's quoting um, Dr. Bridget Howarth, the fly specialist from the university. Absolutely perfect. Well, I think we'd all agree it's a perfect image of an ant-like insect. All its parts. Now, it's art. Is it art? She says it's evolutionary art. Do you agree it's art? I think it's a piece of artwork. The question is, is it art that's produced by evolution or art that's produced by creation? Well, ho hang on a moment. Architecture implies an architect. Design implies a designer. Art implies a, an artist. So when you talk about art, you're talking about mind, plan, purpose, an artificer. You're not talking about the blind, random, non-planned, unguided evolutionary processes. You see how people shoot themselves in the foot? What they've just drawn attention to is a wonderful evidence for biblical creation that flies in the face of evolution for those who have eyes to see. Christian, here this afternoon, hold your ground. Hold your ground on, evolution, uh, on creation. You've got nothing to fear from evolution. Whether you're looking at cosmology, geological dating, you're looking at dinosaurs, human fossils, or anything from biology, whilst I've certainly not disproved millions of years of evolution, what I've shown you is from some very recent scientific facts that the evidence of cold, hard scientific facts far better fits the biblical record and the biblical time frame. And yes, I've cherry-picked some examples because I can't speak for millions of years, but if you give me long enough, I could show you many, many more examples. That's what the literature's for. Christians, you need to proclaim creation for the biblical, societal, theological reasons I mentioned earlier, the gospel reasons. You need to be encouraged to hold the ground on science and cast down things which come against the truth of the Bible, the truth of the gospel. That's what Paul says to do. Every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God is something that you should bring into captivity to the obedience of Christ. You should unashamedly stand firm and hold your ground. And I want to say, beware of liberal theology. That may seem a strange statement coming at the end of a talk like this, because we've been talking about science. But liberal theology really is whenever people question the straightforward and plain statements of the Bible and say, well, it seems to mean that, but it doesn't really mean that. It can't mean that because of something outside the Bible, some opinion of man, some piece of research, so-called. Whenever you see people putting more value in the opinions of men and women than the word of God, then they've become liberal in their approach, even as a true Christian. And that's really no different from what was happening during the so-called enlightenment, which I prefer to call the endarkament of the 18th and 19th centuries, when people were higher critics of the word of God. They said, well, we're going to read the Bible just like any other book. We're going to criticize it, pull it apart, examine it, question it, etc. And it can seem plausible to untrained people who don't know much about the issues when they see a qualified, charismatic, enthusiastic, um, articulate person get up and start talking and holding forth on these issues. But to put trust in those people when their opinions disagree with God's word is like jumping out of an aeroplane without a parachute. It's not really faith at all. It's a blind faith. That kind of leap of faith, putting your trust in man rather than God, when there's a contradiction between man and God, is going to end in tragedy. 
And many people have made a shipwreck of their faith. There's a way that seems right to men, but in the end it leads to death. I'm not saying a person can't be a Christian and be an evolutionist. I once was such a person myself. But once you start understanding and working out that, then you end up with all sorts of serious issues. Wrong thinking can have deadly fruits. Be careful where you go to get your facts and be careful what you believe and be careful, friends, what you teach other people, particularly younger people. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, said, unorthodoxy, and you could read there the word liberalism, questioning the Bible, unorthodoxy makes its advance in the face of tolerance and undermines orthodoxy like a slowly creeping paralysis. It doesn't need to repudiate evangelicalism explicitly because it constantly destroys and overthrows it by more subtle means. Unorthodoxy is always happy to keep evangelical terminology. We're seeing that all the time at the moment. People who profess with the loudest voice to be upholders of the truth and authority and inerrancy and infallibility of the scripture, whilst at the same time they completely destroy it and disagree with it. Unorthodoxy is always happy to keep evangelical terminology because it simply redefines the terms and makes them meaningless. When words can mean anything, they mean nothing. That's food for thought for those who think compromises on Genesis, the creation, the fall of the flood and Babel don't matter. And listen to this, Archibald Brown. If you want a book of sermons, Christian, to bless your heart and challenge you and bring you close to weeping and bring you to heart examination, I can really recommend this book of sermons. Archibald Brown was a great preacher at the East London Tabernacle and for a short while, some years after Spurgeon, at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. And he said, as I looked, I seemed to see billow after billow of high criticism sweeping in. He was contemporary with Charles Darwin, by the way. Oh, how they broke upon this sea wall, the Bible. And I noted how the men who ought to have been preachers of the truth were themselves its critics. And the men who ought to be leading their congregations into faith in God were busy making infidels. And I heard the shout, Genesis is rocking and it will soon be down. I listened and I heard the scoffers say, we will clear all the Old Testament off before long. Now, you might think it's a bit dramatic, but I would say he was remarkably prescient, almost prophetic. He would have claimed to be no prophet. How true his words have shown to be. He understood Genesis was under attack and that it was foundational to much else in Scripture. So the solution to this problem I showed you earlier is to recognize the foundational nature of the problem. The issues we see in society are part of the symptoms of an underlying malaise that man has rejected the truth and authority of the Bible. We need to stand firm on what we believe. We need to build up our own foundations, as the man at the bottom right is now doing. And we need to be attacking the wrong thinking at the foundations of the world's thinking. Not attacking people, not flesh and blood, but exposing the flaws of evolutionary science, whilst at the same time holding our ground confidently on biblical creation, training and equipping ourselves, our young people, our children, our grandchildren, the teenagers in our church and the next generation to defend their faith. That's what Isaiah is really saying here, I think. And they that shall be of thee, in other words, God's people, shall build the old waste places. Thou shalt raise up the foundations of many generations and thou shalt be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of paths to dwell in. Friends, tonight, it is tonight now. Are you a restorer? Are you a repairer? Are you repairing breaches? Are you building or are you tearing down? Which are you doing? Hopefully you're not 
Hopefully you're not tearing down. But unwittingly, we can tear down. We need to be builders. We need to be upholding the truth. It's a timely word for Christians designed to impact today's secular society, I believe, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. Earnestly contend for the faith that you have been given, Christian. So that's been a word for Christians, particularly in those closing parts of my talk. I've gone a little bit over, just over the hour, but I hope that's been useful. I don't apologise for the fact that it wasn't merely a talk about the science. It was a bit of a preach, but I hope that's been challenging. We've had a really encouraging and stimulating talk, I would say, and I'm sure many of you would agree, from Stuart earlier. Maybe you've got some questions that arise from what you heard earlier or from what you've just heard, or maybe questions that you, have, that you had already before you came in today and you would like an answer. I'll do my best to, to help you if you have any questions. Macro and microevolution. Well, macro means big, micro means small. So it's big evolution and small evolution. But what, the, what that is talking about is microevolution would be used by some people, not all, and I don't use the phrases myself, as I'll explain in a moment. Microevolution is the small changes that we can observe even within a human lifetime. You can see, for example, that if you use animal husbandry to breed different species of uh, different breeds of chicken or uh, of um, dog or sheep or cattle, you can get significant differences. And if you selectively breed from that, you have seen a small change. But those changes that you saw are within the same species, the same kind of animal. There hasn't been anything new introduced in terms of genetics, no new DNA. Microevolution would be the small changes like the peppered moth you may have learned of at uh, school, where you have moths, light and dark, resting on tree trunks. Before the Industrial Revolution, the dark moths stuck out like a sore thumb and the birds could easily eat the dark moths. The light moths were well camouflaged against the clean tree trunks with their lichen covering. And then the Industrial Revolution came along, blackened the tree trunks with the soot and the pollution, killing off the lichens. And now the reverse was true. The light moths stuck out like a sore thumb. The birds could eat those and not the dark moths. That was supposed to be a good example of natural selection in action. And indeed, it seemed to be. But even if that was a good example, it all it, and it isn't, as I'll say in a moment, but it was an example, <laughs> pardon me, of small changes. The light and dark already existed, but 50 years later, the light and dark have now changed in their proportions in the population. A biologist would say that a gene frequency change has taken place. Actually, the birds don't eat those moths, it's bats that eat them because they don't rest on the tree trunks, they rest in the twigs of the canopy of the tree. So it was a completely mistaken idea. But it was an example many people have heard. The idea of bacteria becoming resistant to antibiotic. So you've got an infection with Helicobacter pylori, gives you stomach ulcer, and you have a drug from your doctor, some kind of antibiotic like penicillin, it clobbers the, and the bacteria, so you get rid of your stomach ulcer, and you're now you're happy. I was going to say happy as Larry, but uh, <laughs> you're happy. And um, then there's a trouble because this infection comes back, and it turns out you've got a drug-resistant bacterial infection. You've had a little population of the bacteria that didn't have the full ticket of the genome. They had a mistake. They had a mutation. And that meant, although they were mutants, they weren't able to take in and metabolize and break down the antibiotic. And that meant 
that they were able to resist the effects of the antibiotic and they survived. They're mutants, but they're super wimps. And in the body, under the influence of antibiotic drugs, they actually survive. Out in the wild, or once you take the patient away from the position of receiving antibiotics, they're immediately going to die out because they're unfit, they're less fit than the rest of the bacteria. But those changes, and I've given you three examples, dogs, moths, bacteria, they're what some people would call microevolution. Nothing new is involved, no new genetics, no new information. Macroevolution would require new genetics, novel changes in the DNA that specify for a new protein, a new enzyme, eventually new tissues and new organs and new organ systems have to come into existence that were not there before. So for something like a bacteria to develop into a horse, you've got to build all the body parts that the horse has, which they're not present in a bacterium, and therefore you've got to add a lot of information over time. That's macroevolution. There's no evidence that the things we observe, the so-called microevolution, can ever add up to the changes that people are talking about when they believe in macroevolution. Small, becoming big, because all the changes that are called microevolution are in the wrong direction. They are a loss or a messing up of existing information. And if they were an example of, of macroevolution, given enough time, that would be like a merchant putting a hand in his pocket, putting out some change and say, well, I've got some money. If I keep throwing, losing a bit of money every week, I'll become richer. That's literally what people are saying when they say microevolution, given enough time, can add up to macro. So we would advise not to use the words micro and macro. Evolution is the word which means the macro in most people's minds, molecules to man, dinosaurs to birds, ape to human, and we would use the word evolution for that. But the things that we were just talking about, whether it's bacteria or, or moths or anything else, dogs or any observations you make in the real world, that's um, better called diversification. That's segregation of existing DNA. It's, a, it's like shuffling a pack of cards. You don't introduce new cards, but you get different uh, order, different arrangement of the cards. Different arrangements mean different uh, appearance. If that's shuffling of the DNA, you get a different appearance in the animal or plant that's then in the next generation. But it's nothing new. Does that make sense? You can find a, a, a fuller answer to that, better explained than I've just done it in the answers book, uh, which I recommend to anybody who wants to have one thing to take away and... Um, read. Let me just give you a few pointers. This book up there um, has been written by someone in this country, endorsed by Stuart Burgess, endorsed by John Peat, the Biblical Creation Society, endorsed by Dr. Vid Sidira, all three um, as, uh, friends of mine who are, and they agreed to give an endorsement to this little booklet. Uh, Rob is a supporter of CMI and he's written this at a layperson's level and it covers a, a wide range of really interesting things, just at the kind of level that your question was at, and everybody would benefit from this. You can, I've deliberately put that up because you, wouldn't have told, you couldn't have told from the title that it included all those things. What on earth is good God doing? Making sense of our troubled world, a biblical Christian worldview, but there's a lot of scientific stuff in there as well at a very simple, basic level with some illustrations. So I'd encourage you... Uh, to consider that, particularly young people here today, but anybody. And this is the book Achilles' Heels I mentioned, and that's the DVD that goes with it. It's an extremely um, thorough resource. Um, I wouldn't advise reading the book unless you first 
read the Creation Answers book, the red one I mentioned earlier. But that's a great book, that book, to answer all the commonly asked questions on a whole range of topics. Um, Stuart's books are still up there and his DVDs. Take advantage of those. And I would just mention finally one resource, and maybe you've got some other questions. If you have, just as I've finished doing this, I'll take any more questions before we close. Creation Magazine is the most... The resource, the resource which we produce that produces the most feedback and testimonies of people who've become Christians, without any doubt, because it's the one that is read by families. It's a family magazine. Yes, it has articles which um, are not all for children. There's a children's section. But these are some examples <coughs> of things that have appeared recently. That's an ichthyosaur, snapped, frozen in time, as it were, not actually frozen, but buried quickly in the process of giving birth to its young. And that has tremendous evidence for the recency of the fossil, the rapidity with which it forms, and it's very consistent with a global flood, as the Bible records. Dominic Statham has written, one of our colleagues has written an excellent um, article in the, uh, the magazine with the bees on the front on the Bible's biology, and uh, there's one on the Big Bang that was in the last but one issue. The current issue, which if you subscribe today, you'd get this one, has uh, a whole range of articles. I'm just flicking through a few. Geology, one on Leviathan, its body armor. We believe it was a real creature, not a crocodile, but maybe a mega crocodile, something that would have been 10 times heavier than the largest Nile crocodile today. Leviathan, a whole chapter in Job on that. And uh, there's a children's section that deals with science and dinosaurs. There's the Tasmanian devil. Um, there's an article here, and this is just a few select selected articles from the magazine what all atheists have to believe, written by a former atheist, now creation ministry speaker in Canada, Calvin Smith. And we believe in this magazine. Yes, we're biased, but we believe in it because it does lead to people becoming Christians. It does break down the barriers to faith that some people have because it's full of cold, hard facts, what one of my sons calls the colds. Give me the colds, he always says in an argument when, when people are not convincing him. And... Uh, it has powerful evidence to eliminate doubts, as this man found. He was inundated with evolution at school, and it knocked and rocked his faith, but it eliminated doubts, so his faith was reinforced. And uh, here's another person who says, you guys make evangelism easy. I just give a creation magazine to someone, and the next time I see them, we talk about it. Or you could do the same with an article from, um, that you've read on the web. You just send them an email. Check out this article. Let me know what you think. I'd be interested to know your opinion. Very low-key evangelism, but very effective. And, and uh, I like this one, got this fairly recently. Your magazine is great. As soon as it comes through the door, the wrapper comes off and I'm reading it. I wish it came more often. Keep up the good work. 12-year-old boy called Peter. So if you, if you like reading and you enjoyed science and you enjoy thinking about these things, I encourage you to think about that. We're just going to pass around some clipboards in a second. Those are the prices. Digital is only three pounds extra. I mean, that's an absolute bargain. So just fill out the form with your name and address. It saves a bit of time. Bring it up to the bookstall upstairs if you're interested. All we need is your name and address and tick whether you'd like a one or three year subscription and whether you'd like it to have it digital. If you buy a subscription today, the advantage of buying it today is you get a free gift of a back issue of the magazine of your choice. And if you subscribe for three years, you also get a DVD of your choice. There's a number to choose from up there, like that documentary on the intricacies of cells. It's a brilliant documentary. Um, you can also purchase that, but um, you get that documentary for free or a selection, one of a selection of other 
DVDs. Now, I don't personally have one of these tablets or devices uh, that people, iPads and all of those things. But if you do, three pounds, you can read the magazine on that and can share it with up to five such devices in your own home, which uh, is absolutely dirt cheap, isn't it? Cheap as chips, as some people would say. So have a look at those resources. And um, again, is there anybody else who would like to ask a question just before we formally close? You can come and talk to me afterwards if you've got questions. You can agree to disagree with me. That's also fine. Thank you for coming today. Appreciate you coming. Remember, if you've got questions, there are answers. Creation.com is a good place to go.